Hello and welcome to the Steal My Name podcast. I'm your host, Bob Barrow. Episode 20 is here. I cannot believe it. I've made it all the way to 20 of these. And it's it's strange. It's like on the one hand, it's like, yes, of course, you've been working every week. You know, you get back to it every time you get those episodes up. But it's, I think because time has become so shitty and amorphous right now for a lot of people, myself included, you know, I've, I've been on, I've been off like most of us, it'll be two months here in a couple of days. So it's strange to, to try and put those numbers together, but yes, 20 episodes. So I thought for episode 20, let's, instead of doing like 10 films or another big barrage, I just pick one big mother of a film. And because it's superhero month, what's the biggest superhero movie we've had, if not in the last 10 years, possibly ever? And that is Avengers Endgame. Yes, the big badass of the whole superhero genre. It's hard to beat this one. It might not be the best superhero ever made, superhero movie ever made, but fuck, it is absolutely massive and incredible. So, when I was doing a frame apart and Infinity War came out, uh, on that show we did an entire month, I think it was month of May, uh, Marvel Mayhem, yes, that was the name of it, where uh, we reviewed and discussed every Marvel movie that had been released up to Infinity War. And since then, I, I haven't had to talk, a chance to talk about the other ones. So after that came Ant-Man and the Wasp, which was... A delight. If you like the first Ant-Man, you're going to like the second Ant-Man. It's it's a wonderful movie. Uh, Captain Marvel came out, which I'll talk about as we go along. And then Endgame and then Spider-Man Far From Home brought us to a close. So, but what I'm here to talk about is Endgame. So, I guess we can do a synopsis. Like, I think everyone in the world literally saw this movie, but we'll do a synopsis just, just for fun. So Avengers Endgame, directed by Joe and Anthony Russo from 2019. After the devastating events of Avengers Affinity War, the universe is in ruins. With the help of remaining allies, the Avengers assemble once more in order to reverse Thanos' actions and restore balance to the universe. So I think to properly talk about Endgame, we need to talk a little bit about Infinity War first. So for 10 years, the MCU had been building towards a, a very dramatic, not a conclusion, but kind of a showdown in this phase of the Marvel Universe, which is since come to be called the Infinity Saga. So each year, each phase, the movies were getting better. They were getting more interconnected. New characters were being introduced. The films were becoming more complex. And what's fun about that and what's one of the primary things that's neat about the MCU as a whole, but specifically Infinity War, is it just starts. It is banking on the fact that you have seen all these other films. Now, you could still go into Infinity War and watch the movie. You wouldn't get as much near as much out of it, but that to me, I was so thrilled sitting down and watching Infinity War. Like, are they going to do a bit of a recap? Where is everybody? No. It just starts, and that was just super dope. Infinity War itself, Avengers 3, was such a huge achievement. You know, getting the core six Avengers together back, you know, it seems so long ago with that first Avengers movie, that in and of itself was a near-impossible task. It felt so monumental at the time that they could manage to bring all these disparate characters together and function in a cohesive way. But now, 
it's so the Marvel universe is so much bigger than just those six heroes. The Infinity War had to bring together the Avengers, the Guardians of the Galaxy, Doctor Strange and all the Wizards stuff. The entire gallery of Marvel heroes had to come together for this, uh, give or take two. So the only guys that sat that out were Ant-Man and uh, Hawkeye. And I think, as we all know, Infinity War was a complete fucking slam dunk of a film. And it ended with one of the biggest mic drops in cinema history. You know, the idea that we've been following this whole movie, our heroes are are fighting as hard as they can, and they keep getting smacked down, and then they fucking lose. They lose the battle. Thanos wins. It's his movie. He wins. Now, if you knew the comic book, the Infinity, uh, the Infinity War comic, going into this, then you know that Thanos does snap, but in the comic, he snaps at the start of the movie and the entire or of the comic book. And the entire comic is about the remaining heroes and all the different characters in the Marvel Universe going to war against Thanos. Or Infinity Gauntlet, I think, is the name of the comic book. But this time, we get all the way to the end. He's knocking the heroes aside, whomping everybody. And I'm looking at my watch. I'm like, we've been in here a while. Like, we're coming to the climax is he going to snap? Is he not going to do it? Are they, is he going to beat? Like, are we going to win? And then boom, snaps, credits. You could have heard a pin drop in the theater. You could hear people crying. It was, I was crying when Spider-Man gets dusted in Infinity War. I was sobbing, sobbing. And it was just crazy. But we knew there was going to be another one. We knew that there was Avengers 3 and 4 was going to take to tell this story. Now, at the time, there was a period of time, I should say, with movies where there got to be a bit of a fad for splitting the final films of a series into two parts. So Harry Potter kind of kicked it off with, uh, I don't know if it was first, but whatever. You had Harry Potter, Deathly Hallows was split into two. Twilight split their last one into two. Hunger Games split theirs into two. Now, the argument made by the producers was that there was just simply too much story to pack into one movie. And that's just bullshit. It's money. That's that's all it was. It could have been easy for us to assume that, oh, you're splitting the movie into two pieces. You're just trying to get the same, you know, get the money out of us twice. Endgame is just going to be Infinity War Part 2. But thankfully, and of course, because it's Marvel, it's not. Endgame, or Infinity War, as the title suggests, it's a war movie. You know, everyone kind of has his or, her, his or her own little mission that they're off on. You know, we're split up into some different groups. You know, Iron Man and Doctor Strange, Spider-Man, some of the Guardians fighting on Titan. Then we have Captain America and his guys in Wakanda, Thor and Rocket doing their thing. And then groups start to come together for these final showdowns. But it is a, it is a war movie. That's The title doesn't bury the lead. Whereas Endgame is wisely not that movie. And it's not just, it is Avengers 4. It is not just like Avengers 3.5, which it, it could have easily been. Like, that's one of the a criticism that was leveled against Captain America Civil War, is that it basically felt like Avengers 2.5 instead of a Captain America movie. I agree and disagree. You, you can't really complain because Civil War is such a fucking good movie. But. Yeah, so now we're up now we're up to speed of, of where we left off with Infinity War, so we can finally start talking about Endgame. Now, the movie kicks off 
with a very, you could say, not an obvious choice. It's kind of like the anti-James Bond opening. You know, Infinity War started with, you know, so brilliantly with Thanos attacking the Asgardian ship. And in the opening moments, he kills two fan favorite characters, beats the shit out of the Hulk and beats the shit out of Thor. So we're like, oh, okay, this is the caliber of villain that we're that everyone else now has to deal with. He knocked the two strongest Avengers right out of the out of the arena. But this starts completely different. We start with Hawkeye at the family farm. And as soon as that scene started, I, you just have a terror. I had a terrible feeling in the pit of my stomach that something was going to go wrong. And it, what this does is it brings us back into the Marvel universe. We see a character we didn't see in the last one, but it also firmly, firmly establishes the human cost of what Thanos did. Because the first movie is so much action and so much fighting and there's so much shit going on, and we only really get a couple of moments at the very end of the movie to deal with the snap, it's so traumatizing, it's so heavy, and it's heroes that are going. Here, this is like Hawkeye, well, it's easy to pick on Hawkeye, I think especially after, especially after Age of Ultron, he's the human being he's I know what that sounds strange but he is like the normal guy on the team he has a family he has a wife and he has a kids and they have this whole life of theirs and that's what Thanos took he didn't just dust our heroes he dusted people's children people's spouses took their entire lives away from them so that is such a brutal heavy opening to do and it immediately shows what we're going to get for the rest of the movie. And what we get as a whole from Endgame is a film that doesn't have an ounce of fat on it. It's a long movie, but every single scene does so much heavy lifting that it's, it's incredible. So, cause we're at the start, perfect example here. So after we leave Hawkeye's family, the first, next scene we get is Tony and Nebula on the, on the Milano after the, they've left Titan and they're trying to get home. So it looks like they're just playing a little game with each other to pass the time where they're flicking the little piece of paper back and forth, trying to get it into each other's goals. And we get some acute bantery fun back and forth, and it looks like that could just be it. They're just doing something to pass the time. But because everyone is so smart at Marvel, it's so much more than that what's going on. Nebula is a character that's so haunted by her past, and her inability to ever beat her sister, to feel like she ever wins. She always feels like she's losing. No matter how much she succeeds, she's being punished. So now that she's finally the hero, and despite the fact that she's lost everyone, now that she finally got to have this life with the Guardians and with Gamora, she's lost everything. But in this one little tiny moment with Tony, she finally gets to win a game. And it seems so small and so simple, but it has such huge resonance from a character perspective. And for Tony, he's been on this such a long journey for away from selfishness to selflessness. And here it's on full display. Despite the hopeless situation that they're in, and we know we're about to have it explained to us how hopeless everything is, he's still trying to distract 
nebula and take care of those people who are around him. To be a genuine hero. You know, sometimes being a hero isn't about, it's not always about punching out bad guys or fighting monsters from other galaxies. Sometimes it's simply about just sitting down and playing a game with somebody, taking care of somebody that's in need. Now, to move away from that wonderful moment, because it happens at this point in the movie, kind of have to address the, the elephant turd in the room here, and that is Captain Marvel. Okay. I did not like Captain Marvel. I went and saw it in theaters. I've watched it two or three times since then. Because I want, I'm like, maybe I missed something, you know, because the whole time I'm watching the movie in theaters, I'm like, I don't know, something about this doesn't work. There's a lot of things that I think don't work in, in Captain Marvel. And I hate that, that horseshit argument that, oh, if you don't like Captain Marvel, it means you're sexist. No, it has nothing to do with that. I couldn't give a crap if it was a male or female hero. The character as presented in the movie is is just not heroic in any way. I don't empathize with her. I think she's she doesn't go on any kind of a real struggle or journey like the other like other heroes should go through male or female. And she's bullying people with her powers. There's no clear description of what her power set is and how it functions. The movie is so overly complicated and committed to retconning stuff. It's it's just a mess. Did not care for it. So, because she was kind of shoehorned into the MCU at the 11th hour, her importance to the Marvel Universe, and especially to the Avengers and Endgame, I think is really, it's been very much inflated. You know, she's huge on the poster for Endgame, but she's barely in the movie. And characters who have way bigger roles are smaller. to, To me, that just... That's, it's little things that just bug me. So she's been shoehorned into this movie. And she is really just the Doss Machina character. Doss, like, that's all she's there for. She's like, oh, Tony's stuck in space. How do we get him? Captain Marvel could save him. You know? And the other characters have to keep saying how much they like her so that they can remind the audience that she has anything to add. That, yes, the Avengers love her. Well, yeah, she brought Tony back, but they just keep saying they like her. You know, you know literally, Tony has to say, she's great. We need, this is some new blood. We're, she, we need her. And Thor pulls the hammer at her and they're like, I like this one. Like, oh, bull. She's like, I'm going to go kill Thanos. Fuck you guys. Whatever. Like, ugh, ugh. So it's, it's a situation where you have a character that is there to serve the plot and not the story. She only is in this movie to solve some problems in the story. How do we get Tony back? Use Captain Marvel. We need a big hit at the end of the movie? Oh, just use Captain Marvel. There's no emotional value to her being in the film. Maybe if they had have kept her a part of the story throughout the film, we could have got to know her. But I don't know, maybe Captain Marvel 2 will be better going to be a new writing and directing team, hopefully. I, I don't know. It just doesn't work well with me, but whatever. So she's here. The remaining Avengers and Captain Shoehorn decide they're going to track down Thanos. So if there's any part of Endgame that kind of feels like a bit of a holdover 
from Infinity War, it is this, the opening 10 minutes or 15 minutes of this movie. Because that's, that's really what it is. It's been three weeks since Thanos did the snap and, you know, Tony's back and they go and fly off to Thanos. Thanos has got rid of the stones. Use the stones to destroy the stones. Thor lops his head off. So that's it. We're like, oh shit. I have to say if there was any part of the movie that felt a little clunky to me, it was that part. I I felt it was abrupt and strange. Like now I get it. Now it works for me just fine. You have to you have to deal with this Thanos unless he's going to continue to be a threat, which kind of goes against this philosophical genocidal journey that he was on in the last movie. But his mission is complete. It cannot be undone. They cannot simply just get the gauntlet, snap everybody back. What he did, their vic- their loss is final now. There is nothing to avenge anymore. And then we do a Ghostbusters 2 style jump where we move five years into the future. And that's a bold move in a movie filled with bold moves. So, like I said, because Thanos has destroyed the stones and their victory is, or their loss is final, his victory is complete. By jumping the five years into the future, the survivors, the remaining heroes, mainly the core six Avengers, they've had time to live with this failure, to let it impact their lives. Now, they've had time, this time that has passed, to either get back to some sense of normality in this fucked up world or to let the guilt of their loss completely destroy them. And it runs the gamut. Cap's running a support group. Natasha is still trying to keep some sense of order, working with Wakanda, Nebula, Rocket, War Machine, and Captain Shoehorn to keep some kind of Avengers-like group alive. Uh, Thor fell apart. Hawkeye got stabby. Only really Tony and Hulk are living a life of anywhere near some kind of quality, you know, any kind of real existence, like anything you could say positive has come from this for them. Things are grim. Like, this is serious. This is not, you know, the world didn't magically bounce back and everybody's happy and thrilled and so grateful for what Thanos did. Obviously not. So we're on this very grim note, but... Of course, as we start to move toward, as the plot kicks, really kicks off, help shows up from the most unlikely hero in the Marvel Universe, and that's Ant-Man. Now, it was obvious. We knew this was going to happen. The time travel elements were set up in Ant-Man and Wasp, so we knew that something like that was going to happen. And it's great because it, it comes from him. He's such an unlikely hero to do this. His movies are funnier, they're low-key, he's never fighting fighting world-ending threats. He's kind of just a guy, you know, that's been put into this very outrageous situation of being Ant-Man, you know, shrinking, getting bigger, quantum universes, all this stuff. He's surrounded by people that know so much more than he does about what's going on. You know, it's kind of the same way that how Joss Whedon treated Hawkeye in Age of Ultron where that criticism he was given in the first movie that Hawkeye was just kind of there. So he just, you know, fuck you. I'll make him the emotional heart of, of, of age of Ultron. And here 
he's not Ant-Man isn't the emotional heart of the film, but how they're going to save the day, that comes from him. He's the one that brings that initial thing through. And his I have to say his reunion with his daughter who is Cassie who's now older is probably one of Paul Red Paul Rudd's best acting moments. It's so quiet and he does so much work in that that little scene and it's just it's just absolutely wonderful. Because we have Ant-Man also in a bigger role here, he brings a really obviously a very strong element of humor with him to what could have otherwise been a very overall grim film. It's easy. Half, half the world, half the universe is dead. It, they could have had a very grim Avengers 4. You could say that Infinity War, despite humor, is a very serious film. What's nice here is he kind of, by having Ant-Man in the plot so strongly, I'm not saying he gives permission for everything else to be funny, but because he's kind of leading the way on this, there's a lot of humor that starts to bleed into the movie, especially you could say the middle section of the film. It gets it gets nice and light, which is good. It's still very serious, but you're allowed to kind of perk things up for a bit before what we know is going to be a very dark conclusion of the film. They're not afraid to play with tone at all. And to talk about tone, this film weaves different tones like Rush works time signatures. It's incredible. It can go from serious to funny to intense and anywhere else in between. And it just flips on a dime and gives you nine cents change. And they are allowed to get away with this. I think it's, you have very strong writing. You have very strong directing. You know, the the Russo brothers and the writing team behind Endgame, they also did Infinity War. This writing team also wrote all three Captain America movies. They wrote Thor Dark World, and the Russos directed Winter Soldier and Civil War before taking on these two movies. So this core group of film of filmmakers have been together for a while. So they've got a real handle on how all this works. And it works because obviously they're strong in what they're doing, but the characters themselves allow for this. We know these people. We've been following them for 10 years. Marvel has spent a very, very long time building these characters up and not just increasing the emotional connection we have with them, but increasing the stakes that these characters have been put into. And because they've all had so many movies for us to get to know them with, we can accept the fact that they can bring levity to dark situations and, but are also ready to stand when, you know, when the darkness really falls. So because it's lighter, because it's, you know, kind of this last ditch effort and we're moving away from the war genre of the last film and where they move us into a very oceans 11 style heist movie. This is another thing that kind of gives them permission to lighten it all up. And now it's in places, like I said, lighter in places, but it's probably the funniest that an Avengers movie has been since probably the very first Avengers movie. It's not a comedy by any means, but I think they knew how dark and how hopeless everything was going to feel by the end of the film that they wanted to try and pack as much 
brightness and fun into it because it's the last time we're going to see some of these characters together. And also by going to this heist film setup using this, uh, this genre, it gives the filmmakers a chance to kind of reassemble the team because, you know, we assembled the Avengers in the very first movie. And since then we've been kind of adding characters and infinity war mashed more of those characters here. But like I said earlier, we're getting to know the characters again, find out where they are in life, you know, and there's been changes. Tony's married to Pepper, and they have probably one of the most insanely cute kids on the planet. Professor Hulk, massive change. Now, I know that was they had planned to introduce that in Infinity War, but they felt like it was just too much going on towards the end of the film, so they reserved it here. And it's, it's great. You know, Mark Ruffalo once again completely knocks Hulk and Banner right out of the park. I'd say... Well, other than Hawkeye going into full Ronin mode, his character is alter ego Ronin from the comics. He's going around just fucking murdering everybody. Probably the biggest shock for everybody, the biggest twist, I know it was for me, was Fat Thor. People were howling in the theaters. Now, Thor has been on this kind of journey since Ragnarok, where they kind of, they did a bit of a 180 on the character and made him more funny. They weren't afraid to explore the the humor of the situation. And they continued that on into Infinity War. And here, it's just taken to the nth degree with, with Fat Thor. He spent five years sitting on his ass with Korg and Meek, drinking and eating and completely giving up on life. He's, he's an alcoholic, big, fat slob that's just hiding away playing video games. And Chris Hemsworth just crushes it in his fat suit and he's just such a piece of shit that he just doesn't give a shit about anything and that's an absolute hoot and the time heist itself is a hoot it's just another brilliant decision in a sea of brilliant decisions because it's time travel it's much more you could say comic booky than some of the than a lot of the other Marvel films have been. There's been some wild stuff, Doctor Strange and all the magic shit, Guardians going out into space, the fantastical elements of Thor, especially in Ragnarok, but time travel, that's really a bigger step towards straight fantasy. It's a very common sci-fi trope they do it in comics all the time, Star Trek, take your pick, it's all over the place. But to bring it in here and try and make it work, they they get away with it because they've done the groundwork. They've they've laid all this out in previous films. So we believe that they can pull this off. And also by doing that, it gives them a bit of a chance to celebrate some of their greatest hits. So primarily going back to the very first Avengers movie, kind of back to the Future 2 style, and going into that film and kind of watching scenes from it happen peripherally. So... It's almost like we're getting deleted scenes from the first Avengers that never actually happened, which is great. You know, we get to see Cap fight Cap and have that America's ass line, you know, it is America's ass, you know, and showing what they've learned. You know, when he gets into the elevator, you know, Hail Hydra, and they let him walk away with the staff. Obviously, Loki takes the Tesseract and vanishes, thus setting him up for his Disney Plus show whenever that comes out. And then we also get to see the return of the Ancient One, Tilda Swinton kicking ass on top of the Sanctum Sanctorum. 
And the other big one, now obviously we go off in the other missions, but I think probably one of the most important moments that we get during this, the heist sequence, the two moments, is characters confronting their pasts. And, you know, we get that scene where Cap sees, uh, oh my God, Agent Carter sees Peggy. And you got to get the feeling that, you know, knowing that, you know, once we've seen the movie, knowing what we know happens, you kind of have a feeling that this might be when he's made this decision, that if he has the chance, this is what he's going to do and go back to her. But it's the characters meeting their parents, Thor going back and talking to his mom. And I know how important that is for me. Like I am a mama's boy, you know, it's, that relationship that you can have with your mom can be so integral. And when you're at your absolute lowest and Thor is at his absolute lowest, you know, like she says, the future has not been kind to you. And sometimes you just need your mom to tell you that everything's okay. And then Tony finally getting to go and make a semblance of peace with his dad. That's a great scene. It's, it's humorous and silly, but Tony had to do that if he was ever going to get a chance to actually rest and go out on top as a hero. This is the last kind of demon that he's been carrying around is this relationship with his father. And that's it's absolutely wonderful how they resolve all that stuff. Now, the time heist isn't all just fun and games, even though there is a lot of fun to be had in that sequence. We have the death of Black Widow. I think that we knew going into this, at least I knew going into this, that heroes were going to die. I even, I wrote this kind of heartfelt essay uh, the night before I went to see it because I kind of realized, I'm like, shit, I don't know if I'm ready for this. I don't know if I'm ready to watch my heroes fall. Because I've, I've said before on this show and on A Frame Apart, I was not a comic book guy growing up. I didn't collect comics. I had a couple, but I wasn't that person. I didn't have friends that collected them, so it never really came up. My interaction with comic books and comic book characters is through the MCU. It's through film. So I saw the first Iron Man in theaters. I've seen 95% of the movies since then in theaters. I'm invested in the MCU. I'm what you'd call a fan. And I was worried. So when Black Widow goes, I was shocked. You know, killing Gamora in the last one. I'm like, that's bold. That's a bold move. But Widow's one of the, she's one of the six. You know, this is, that was a huge deal for them to lose her. But it establishes the cost. You know, to beat Thanos, Avengers will have to die. And that's heavy. Superhero movies don't do that. They don't kill the heroes, start killing the heroes off. Sidekicks, sure. Friends, family, spouses, you know, yeah, they're all fair game in a super. If you're a friend or a family member of a superhero, your life is in danger in the screenwriter's hands. But here it's like, holy shit, they're killing people. And during the time heist, we also get reintroduced to Thanos. Now, if there's, I guess you could say one bummer about this film, it's a minor nitpick, but it is there. It is Thanos himself. Because the Thanos that fought our heroes in the first movie is dead. The Thanos that we're dealing with now, he doesn't really carry the same weight, 
because he's not the one that has been punching our heroes around up till this point. It is technically still Thanos, but he's such a different version of the character this time. Because he hasn't been collecting the Infinity Gems, the Infinity Stones, and his character changes throughout Infinity War as he starts to gain these very godlike powers and becomes almost philosophical. You know, this kind of, he's this mad genocidal titan, but there's this strange philosophical air about him in the first movie. Where here, he's still in full on Thanos conquering mode. And. Like he's very threatening here, and he fucking whoops ass with even without the gauntlet. But it's, eh, it's not as I hate to say it, but it's not as satisfying to see this Thanos go down. And again, this is a very minuscule nitpick in the scope of things. It's it's a movie that you you really can't pick apart. It's it accomplished. It's standing on the impo- the shoulders of impossible giants. And still manages to be taller. Like, it's it's crazy. So that's that's a tiny little shit pick. But Thanos comes back into play here. And like Tony said, when you mess with time, time tends to mess back with you. Because we obviously have to bring Thanos back into this. We have to have the showdown with him at the end, our big final battle. So they've pulled off the time heist, got all the stones back together. And Thanos, of course, pops through and levels the Avengers compound. Now, Hulk has snapped. We know people have started to come back because Hawkeye, apparently in five years, despite being a murdering psychopath, didn't change cell phones or cell phone numbers. That's just, that's just smart planning. You know, you don't, like, just forward your address to a P.O. box, you know, set your voicemail message to murdery, and just, and just check when you can. So, this all has led to the probably the most epic showdown in comic book movie history. And it may be one of the greatest battles ever committed to screen. And it's, it's huge. I could probably do an entire episode just talking about the final battle and the guys at new rock stars. If you want anal retentive, wonderful detailed breakdowns, the kind that I'm not really doing so much on this, on the steal my name podcast, Go check out New Rockstars. Uh, they're on YouTube. They do wonderful breakdowns of everything. A lot of comic book stuff, a lot of pop culture stuff. They're currently in the middle of a, a rewatch and a re-breakdown of the Infinity War saga. Some of it, they get a little carried away with minute little details, but it's usually still fun. The guys that host it are really enthusiastic, so they've broken down this final battle several times, so go check that out. But it's fucking huge. So Thanos nukes the compound, and then we get to see, you know, the the trifecta, our three big heroes, Cap, Thor, and Iron Man, face off against Thanos. And, like, we've seen these guys fight Thanos before, but, like, yes, he, he smacked them all around, but he had the gauntlet at that point. So here, it's like, okay, he's got his, his big old sword, and we're like, okay, you know, these guys are ready to go. Like, maybe without the gauntlet they stand some kind of a chance. But Thanos just fucking goes through them. Like, they're not even there. Just because he's a titan. He's, if I'm not mistaken, he's an eternal. And with the deviant gene, I think it's all hardcore comic book stuff. But we get to see just how deadly Thanos is, even without 
his gauntlet. And he just tears through Iron Man, Thor, and Captain America like they're not even there. And, you know, below ground, you know, Hawkeye's trying to keep the the gauntlet away from his forces. There's the Nebula Gamora showdown stuff. You know, Ant-Man and Rhodey and all them are in trouble. But what we're really focusing on is this battle above ground. And of this initial conflict, probably the most, one of the greatest moments in the MCU. Because this, this movie does a lot of fan service. It manages, it just toes that razor's edge of awesome yeah moments and what really come down to fan service moments but they're motivated it's not just look they did that thing we wanted them to do who gives a shit what it has to say about the plot here it's motivated that scene where captain america picks up mjolnir and gets the hammer oh my god people were losing it in the theater i was cheering i went to opening weekend to see this with my friends Dawson and Amber, his wife. And man, we spent probably the last battle just fucking pounding each other on the arms. Like, can you fucking believe it? It's happening. Now, this calls all the way back to Age of Ultron when they're all trying to pick up the hammer and you see Cap kind of give it a little creak. So he gets the hammer and goes into kind of that Bruce Lee kung fu pose with the shield and the hammer and Thor, I knew it. And then Cap just proceeds to fucking smack Thanos around with the hammer and call the lightning down. And oh, oh, so good. It's goosebumps. I have goosebumps talking about that scene because it's just epic. We've wanted this for so long. And Marvel has been smart. They haven't given us everything right away. They've been dulling it out in, or doling it out in such small little doses only when the characters are strong enough and established enough to support it. Because if you try to rush into these things, you end up with the DCEU. That's what happens. We get a Justice League movie before we've had solo movies from three quarters of these characters. So of course we're not invested by the time we get to see these heroes fight together. We don't care. Here, though, we've waited 10 years almost for Thor or Cap to pick up that hammer. We're stoked over the moon. And it was absolutely fucking crazy. So even with the hammer, Thanos smacks him around, splits the shield down the middle, chops his shield in half, just like we saw in Tony's vision in Age of Ultron. So people shit on Age of Ultron when it came out because it had the impossible task of not having Thanos, but still having to have a sequel to the Avengers. But so much of what it did there became important later on. It's just in the moment, like, we can look back now and see it. But I liked it from the beginning. That's why it was the second episode of this show. But, you know, we're left with Cap, the man alone. Everybody's down. The heroes are down. Thanos is landing his army to lay waste to the Earth. And there's Cap, wandering, you know, his shield broken, his arm split open, just tightens that strap. And just, you know, I could do this. I kept waiting for him to say I could do this all day. (laughs) Gets out there on the field in that big, beautiful wide shot of, you know, that man standing alone on the battlefield facing an impossible army. It's absolutely impossible odds. He's dead. And then we hear the voice in the ear. Now, when I saw this movie the very first time in theaters, I was so caught up in this final battle that I had actually forgotten about the snap. It had slipped my mind. I was so caught up in the excitement of, of this fight. 
So that happened and I was just, oh, oh my God. Like, I was so caught up on it. And then to hear, to hear Sam say, on your left. Now, this wasn't a quiet theater that I went to see this movie in. Because it's opening weekend, you're getting the hardcore fans. Now, this movie was this is the highest grossing film of all time. So, of course, obviously, everybody went to see it. But when you go opening weekend, opening night to a movie like this, you're going to get a boisterous crowd. When those portals start to open and the heroes or groups of heroes are coming back one at a time, you know, from Titan, from Wakanda, all this stuff, and all coming through the portal and people are cheering and freaking out and losing it, you know, and, you know, Dr. Strange, you know, are there, is that everyone, you know, Wong, would you want more? And then giant man busts out of the crowd and that incredible pullback that they do across the battlefield. So you see it is, it is a double splash page from a comic book brought to life. It's bigger than anything Marvel has ever done. And they saved it. They waited so we could have this incredible moment, this 10 year catharsis moment we've been building towards. And you see everybody standing there. And then the camera glides back along them. All our heroes on one side, all the bad guys on the other. And into cap catches the hammer and finally shouts Avengers assemble. People were on their feet in the theaters, screaming. Again, I've still got fucking goosebumps right now. Screaming their heads off. And I'm sure a lot of you listening, if you saw this in theaters, people lost their minds. We've been waiting to hear one of them say Avengers Assemble since the first Avengers movie. It's it's crazy. And they wait until everybody is here. It's, you know, we're only missing really... We're missing Black Widow. We're missing Vision. But everyone else is here. Everybody. The Ravagers, the Asgardians, the Wakandan army, all the wizards. Fucking Howard the Duck is here. <laughs> like, everybody is here. And they proceed to clash in this battle that is just awe-inspiring to watch. Everybody gets their moment here. You know, it's not like we've got, you know, like the, the Battle of Wakanda in... Uh, Sorry, in Infinity War. It's a big fight, but we're still focusing on a core group of heroes. Here, every single hero is on the screen. It's fucking madness that they managed to pull this off. And everybody kind of gets their moment. You know, we get to see Sam fly forward and stab this big creature with his wings. See Drax stabbing shit on the back. You know, giant man's crushing stuff. Spider-Man gets to do his activate instant kill. And just, it's fucking craziness. You know, Pepper shows up in her rescue armor and her and Tony are blasting shit in the air. It's just fucking wild. High point, one of the high points, I have to say, is probably when Wanda, Scarlet Witch, hits the field. You know, you took everything from me. You do, I don't even know your name. I don't even know who you are. You know, you will. And she just fucking smokes him. You know, she could have killed him if he hadn't have started bombarding everybody. But in a, in a battle filled with amazing moments, in this seems like a minor peeve, and it's... It's, I don't like, I hate, it, it's tough to offer genuine criticism about things like this because everybody gets so reactionary to it nowadays. Uh, and in some cases, well, 
it's never good to be just reactionary. You should always be thoughtful and then react accordingly. But the when all of the female heroes get together to help Captain Shoehorn after she uh, shows back up for no reason at all, except they needed an excuse to blow up the ship. So let's use Captain Shoehorn. You know, and they're like, how are you going to get across the field? You know, don't worry, she has help. And all of the female Avengers, all the female heroes we've met, gather to do this charge. I, cool, it feels oddly forced in a strange way. Like, all of these heroes across this huge battlefield just left where they were to come over here. There's a moment in Infinity War where... um. The, the one of the children of Thanos has wandered down on the ground. He's like, you'll die alone. And then you hear Widow say she's not alone. And she's there and Okoye's there. And to me, it was like, oh, that is a powerhouse, strong female moment. It was motivated. It felt right. They were fighting for each other. And, you know, these three strong, independent, brilliant characters are fighting this foe. That, to me, was... I thought was a more powerful moment for the for the female heroes than this one was. Now, they do great. Like, you get to see some awesome moments. You know, Valkyrie slicing up the big space whale, the armored space whale. But then in typical Captain Marvel fashion, oh, she needed help. No, she didn't. She just supercharges up off the ground and flies through 50 fucking tanks. That's, that's the problem with, with Captain Marvel is... She's just a blunt instrument when the story needs her to be. It's not a character moment. You know, if we had have established a character who doesn't doesn't want to take help, is such a loner, and now desperately needs this help to get this glove across the field, sure, maybe. But, you know, we just watched her come down out of the Earth's atmosphere and literally using her body blast a bunch of holes, like smash holes in Thanos' gigantic ship. I don't believe she needs help from Nebula and Mantis. Like, you see what I mean? Like, it just, it feels forced, like everything else that Shoehorn does. And she just blasts her way across the field and has no problem. And and then Thanos blows up the time tunnel and she has to fight him. And then for he knocks her down and then doesn't knock her down. Like it's that's the shit I'm talking about, and I it that bugs me. You know, when Thanos fights the other heroes, we know how they fight, their power levels, who they are. She just decides to not get knocked down after a moment. That makes no sense to me. She's so incredibly strong. Apparently, there's no like I could get if her you know sparkles, you know, her fire or whatever is around her got brighter and bigger as she was getting stronger and like, you can't bring me down. But no, nothing, nothing changes. And then she gets up and ready to punch him and then just holds the punch. Just, you just threw your body through a gigantic spaceship, throw your body through Thanos. No, but Thanos pulls the power stone off of the other hand and punches her out of the movie with it. And there were more than a few cheers in the theater when that happened. I won't lie. Uh, I was one of those people cheering because it's just, it's such a waste of a character, a waste of a moment. But once that crap is resolved, this brings us to the, the final moment. And I, I don't even like talking about it. 
when I watched it for this prep, this was like the first time I didn't cry at the end of this movie. So we always kind of knew it was going to come down to one of the core Avengers having to go toe-to-toe with Thanos and something was going to happen. I thought, honestly, I thought they were going to kill Cap. I thought that's what was going to happen. Uh, you know, the soldier goes down fighting. But no, it's Tony. And it makes perfect sense because that is the journey that he has been on through all of these films since 2008, since the first Iron Man. This journey from selfishness to selflessness, to become the hero. And sometimes the heroes have to die. That is just, that's the hero gig, as he even says. So grabs the stones off Thanos's, off the gauntlet. Thanos, you know, I am inevitable. And then you see him and people were, you could feel the energy in the theater. And then I am Iron Man. Boom. Oh my God. Brilliant. And they've earned that moment. You know, if you want to see a moment like that that's not earned, watch Rise of Skywalker. You know, I'm all the Sith and I am all the Jedi. Shut the fuck up. Like, it's such a ripoff moment from, you know, I am Iron Man is so much better than I am all the Jedi. Why? Says who? Says nobody. Like, it's just crap. But here it's incredible. And everybody gets dusted. And then we have to watch Tony Stark die. Peter's crying, War Machine's crying, and Pepper's there with him. It's just, oh, oh, absolutely, absolutely break your heart. And then this incredible funeral scene, which I, myself included, thought that that big panning shot of every single character in the Marvel Universe <laughs> was uh, green screen. But it wasn't. All of them were actually there that day, which must have just been an incredible day to be on set. And it's, it's brutal. It's absolutely brutal at the end of this movie. Like, you're just in tears. You could hear people sobbing, sobbing. And I, again, I was one of them. But it's motivated. It's, it's tragic. You know, Robert Downey Jr.'s presentation of Iron Man was and is so important to so many people that I think in a way that kind of transcends comic book movies. You know, this came out, you know, kind of kicked off the end of the Bush administration when the world kind of needed a hero. And he has been that hero for a lot of people. Like, yes, we know he's an actor. You know, we we know Iron Man's not real. But I think for a lot of people, he was real. You know, we were emotionally invested with him. You know, every year or so, we went and saw another one of his adventures, watched his character change from, you know, a, a bit of a selfish goof to a, gen, a genuine leader and then into a mentor. It was a relationship with Spider-Man, was wonderful. And it was heartbreaking, heartbreaking in a way that you, you don't often get your heart broken in a theater like that, where you've been with a character for so many years and they feel invincible, you know, the invincible Iron Man. And then, you know, looks over at Dr. Strange and this is the one chance. And fuck, man, it's heavy, absolutely brutal. Anyway, yeah, it's brutal. I don't, I generally don't like talking about it. It makes me sad.
It does. It makes me very, very sad. So we get kind of a uh, Return of the King style ending here with lots of different endings because they've got to try and wrap some stuff up. They don't wrap everything up, but the, you know, we wrap up where our main characters are at. So Thor makes Valkyrie the king of Asgard and goes off with the Guardians of the Galaxy. And we'll see what wackiness happens there with the fourth Thor, Love and Thunder, when that comes out. And Cap takes has to take stones back because of all this new time travel stuff that we've seen in the film. But then he doesn't come back. We see old man Cap there at the end, gives the shield to, to Sam, which we'll see play out in the Disney Plus series Falcon Winter Soldier. But like you can tell the writers of this were the guys that wrote Captain America because they're so invested in that character and it's he could have so easily been overshadowed by Iron Man because his present Robert Downey Jr.'s presentation of that character was so big. It would have been very easy for Captain America to be kind of pushed aside as just another character. But to see old man Cap there and you know, we end the last shot of the film. He's back with Peggy. And the motherfucker finally gets his dance. Oh, oh. It's, you're left, you're sad because you're still, like, your face still hurts because you've been crying so hard from Tony. And then that's it. We're left with that. And it's a beautiful moment to go out on. They could have done 45 more minutes showing us where the other characters were, what's the state of the Avengers after this, the state of Wakanda. Instead, we get a little bit of a montage with Tony talking and letting us know that it's okay. You know, we finally won. We avenged in the truest sense of the word. Probably this is the most they've ever lived up to their name. They avenged everybody that was hurt. And truly heroic. This movie is so fucking incredible. I don't honestly do not know what Marvel is going to do with Phase 4. I really don't. It's This has been so big and so meticulously built over these years. And some of these characters aren't coming back. You know, we're not going to have Captain America anymore. Iron Man's gone. I have a feeling Black Widow's going to come back to life during her post credit scene, but that's just my theory. You know... The these we're now we're getting the Disney Plus shows and everything, which means also that the Marvel Universe is going to be very different going into Phase Four. It's going to be more interconnected than ever, but it won't be what we've known. You know, like a series of movies, Avengers, series of movies, Avengers, series of movies, big showdown, and rightly so. It shouldn't do that again. You know, it has to be its own thing. And you know, is it going to be? Galactus, that's some theory going around that Galactus could be the big villain. Who knows? He's an obvious choice, given that the Fantastic Four are going to be coming into the MCU. Uh, I think something cool they could do is finally get the the Phoenix saga correct and make her the final villain. Because instead of fighting this intergalactic threat from beyond, they have to fight one of their own. I think that would be a cooler showdown. It would be completely the antithesis of Thanos or Galactus. Galactus, but who the fuck knows? I have complete and other faith in Marvel, whatever they decide to do. So, whew, that was good. I've been waiting a long time to talk about Endgame and get all that off my chest. 
So that was that was quite fun. But moving on to uh, another new beginning, we are kicking off season two of Deep Space Nine. So season two, episode one, The Homecoming, aired September 26th, 1993. Word that a previously thought dead Bajoran resistance legend is still alive sends Kira and Chief O'Brien to Cardassia 4 to rescue him. Meanwhile, the Circle, a sect of the Bajoran provisional government that is intent on, wipe- intent on wiping out alien influences, is sneaking into power. So this is a great way to start off the second season, because what it does is it, it makes a firm promise to the audience that this story of... Bajor and its turmoil after the Cardassian occupation, this is what they're still focusing on. The If you hated that part of it during the first run, you're not going to enjoy what's going to continue. And I really liked, I love that part of the show. I It's wonderful to sit and really explore a culture like this. But it's a great commitment to pick up where they left off at the end of season one. So there was that great episode in the Hand of the Prophets that started to show that the situation on Bajor is far more complex than we had been initially led to believe. And that this culture, this world has been so shattered after the Cardassian occupation that things are about to get very, very overly complicated very, very quickly. So... Bajor, like I said, is in ruins. It's in turmoil. There's religious riots. Factions are forming. War seems inevitable. And they're desperate for a hero, somebody that can unify all these factions, can lead the provisional government, and start to get everybody brought together so they can move forward as a society and start to actually rebuild. Instead of what can happen in a lot of cases after a big conflict like this, you descend into civil war as people start fighting over power. So they go on this mission to rescue this character of Lee Nollis, who is this symbol, this legend to Bajor. And in typical DS9 fashion, they don't go the easy route. Turns out this guy is a fuck, he's a fraud. He knows he's a fraud. The What he was given credit for, his victories were accidents. And he just had to let people treat him as a hero. And the 10 years he spent in this prisoner of war camp, he couldn't tell anybody. He had to keep up this facade of heroics. And it's so brilliant that they go this route because it's not simple. It's it's complicated. It's just like life. Nothing is easy. And it also speaks to how we as people are so desperate for symbols and to elevate people to to this kind of legendary status. It's the same way that we do that in our own society. Uh, celebrities get this a lot. Actors, football players, whatever. We, we put them on pedestals, and we want them to be these shining examples of everything good and right in the human condition. And it... 99 times out of 100 that it, they just can't support that because they're people. People are fallible. And... But it also speaks to the fact that sometimes these legends and these stories are more important than the people themselves. The importance of a symbol, especially with the people like the Bajorans who are so incredibly shattered, that how valuable a symbol like someone like Lee Nollis can become to them, 
that they can rally around them. You know, it's kind of like that one person in school that seemed to manage to float between all the cliques and they could hang out with the the jocks or the nerds or the, the smokers or whoever. And they could also kind of be a unifying force. And that's what Lee Nollis could be to Bajor. But like I said, because the country is in such ruin, the planet is in such ruins, and as is the case in the real world, there never seems to be a shortage of people that will exploit that turmoil and exploit the suffering of others to gain their own power. And things that would they would have considered war crimes and you know the and attacked and waged war against the Cardassians for just a year before, they're completely fine with doing those things themselves because it's their agenda now. You know, it's it's making the Bajorans a more complicated, thereby a more realistic people. It could have been very easy for them to just stay in this persecuted, like I said, kind of this space Jewish category where they were wrecked by the Cardassians. They're completely guilt-free. They're just innocent little utopia. No, that's not the case. No, no group of people is like that. And they really doubled down on it in this episode. And we're getting to really now dig into their, just how tenuous the situation is on the planet with like, they're going to explore this group, the circle with how they're slowly infiltrating a little Hydra style and gaining power. And they're going to try and overthrow the provisional government and, kick every non-Bajoran off the planet and really just turn into violent warmongering xenophobes themselves. You know, they were so, this group of people so, they were so broken and hated the Cardassians so much that they became their enemies. And that's just, it's what DS9 does best. It's just smart and just using science fiction tropes and science fiction settings to explore the human condition and the fallibility that the human condition has. It's great. It's an excellent kickoff uh, to the new season. And it's a first of, I think a two parter. So next week we'll see how it all wraps up. Very exciting. So my Stephen King reading month continues. I read his uh, collection called hearts in Atlantis from 1999. Now this is a collection that has two novellas and three short stories that are all connected by reoccurring characters and in roughly chronological order, they take place. So for me, the big appeal of this collection is that it had a dark tower novella, a big dark tower novella. It's almost 300 pages. Like it's for anyone other than Stephen King, it's a novel, but for King, it's a novella and it's called low men in yellow coats. And for those of us who have read the dark tower series, we know who the low men are. We come to meet them later in the book or in the series. And this is about a young boy in the 60s who befriends a man who moves into his building uh, named Ted Bradigan. And we come to find out that he is a breaker. He can shine, basically. And he's being hunted by the, the emissaries of the Crimson King, the low men in yellow coats. And that story was so incredible to read. And also because I was just coming off of Tommyknockers, which was such a mess. And then I open this book up and I read the first page 
And King's prose are so smooth, so on point, and so wonderful that you can actually hear it in his voice. And I think that's when you know King's prose are really cooking, is when you can hear him narrating it. And that that is the best story in the entire book. And it's it's an excellent book, but that one is really the high point. Especially when they start to get really specific about Dark Tower stuff. Because if I'm not mistaken, this is going on just as the Wolves of the Kala is about to start. Book five of the Dark Tower series, I think. I think that's the chronology because they talk about them arriving in Endworld. And I think that's Wolves of the Kala. So it's, it's great. It's great. The, the children, the childhood character or the children characters here are so wonderful. And this, the fact that even though you're dealing with this otherworldly threat, you know, these, you're learning about concepts that are so huge and realizing that the world is so much bigger than you ever thought. But this little boy, Bobby Garfield is still dealing with the realities of life and the horrible situation his mother has been put through and bullies attacking him and his friends. And it's just, it's exceptional. It's an exceptional story. The second novella, uh, the title track hearts in Atlantis. This is about, it's, it's not fantastical in any way, but it's about a group of kids that almost flunk out of college because they get caught up with this uh, monument, this epic game of hearts, this hearts tournament that they're playing all through their first semester. And this one spoke to me quite a bit because as somebody that kind of, well, not kind of, but somebody that really fumbled their first college experience, I know what it's like to be so distracted from, from your studies and to be so overwhelmed by the world at large that you start to, you isolate yourself away from school and friends and what you're supposed to be doing into something that is just so instantly gratifying, you know, whether it was, you know, smoking weed or playing video games or watching movies, you're just so desperate for something that you can be in control of. And then all of a sudden you're behind a week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, your world spiraling out of control. But because these books are focused on the 60s and the fallout from that, there's this underlying threat of Vietnam that's happening in the background of this story that not only are these guys fucking their lives up by not going to class, if they flunk out, you know, you flunk out in January, you could be in the jungle in December. And that's heavy. Like, that's a very heavy thing to deal with and to have that. Like, I didn't have that hanging over my head when I was in school. But that's the world these these characters are living in. And the people falling into protest movements and violence and all that stuff. It's, it's heavy. It's very good, but it's very heavy. Blind Willie, the third story, uh, I, I have to say it was, it was neat. Like it's a neat story. This guy was shattered by his war experience in his life and is living these various different lives as he's out there as a panhandler. The setup and everything is cool, but it doesn't really pay much off. It's just kind of a neat little addendum here. Um, the why we're in Vietnam story is cool, dealing with how haunted you can be by the ghosts of war and your past, and how the the actions of others, you can end up inheriting their ghosts. That was cool, but really, when it comes together at the very end, when our main characters from the the first story 
Bobby and Carol come back together was a really nice ending because the these characters go through a lot. You know, Carol ends up getting involved with this, uh, I guess you could say domestic terrorism group, this protest group, and they end up killing some people accidentally. And Bobby gets himself into all this trouble later in life. Just to kind of see them come back together and realize there's some hope. You know, they get a message from from Ted, this older man from the first story, that things are okay. You know, it's you can be okay if you choose to be okay. You don't have to be this slave to your past. It was unexpectedly excellent. I've had this collection for a while, and I knew that it was a Dark Tower story, but... I've been kind of saving it because there is such a finite amount of Dark Tower material. And now between this and the Everything's Eventual collection that I read, other than getting the comic book series, I've read all of it multiple times. So this was, I genuinely recommend this. It's maybe if you have a fan, like a, if you know someone that's a Stephen King fan, but specifically a Dark Tower fan, get them this recommend this they're looking for something else to read because it's just it's Stephen King at his best just in general with character work and plotting and emotion and I shouldn't say plot he hates that word but storytelling and you're also getting some really nice Dark Tower connections here so excellent excellent book recommendations uh, in terms of movies because this is you know a big old mashup of all our favorite heroes it would be obvious to recommend the two Avengers movies I haven't reviewed on this show, but nope. Jane Silent Bob Strike Back and Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah, Giant Monsters All at Attack. Yes, that is the name of the film. If you love watching all your favorite heroes and characters and monsters and all in one place like we got to do with Endgame, Jane, Bo- Jane Silent Bob Strike Back and Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah, Giant Monsters All at Attack. Definitely a recommend there. And books, obvious. Dark Tower series. Read the Dark Tower series. Why haven't you read it? Like, why aren't you reading it right now? Like, that's what you should be doing. Well, once you finish listening to me talk about the Dark Tower series. But read it. Oh, my God. Your your mind will be blown out your asshole. Like, literally. Your brain will start in your skull, and then you'll be looking at your chair going, ooh, that's asshole and brains. Brilliant. Coming next week, Superhero Month continues with Batman. For years, it felt like the only character that could really make its way to the big screen in any meaningful way was Batman. And that kicked off in 89 with Tim Burton's Batman. And that led to four movies, uh, Batman, Batman Returns, Batman Forever, and Batman and Robin. Now, like I said, it would have been kind of an obvious choice for me to do multiple movies for episode 20. You know, it's a zero, it's an anniversary number. But I went a different route. So I thought for episode 21, a completely unexciting, uneventful number, really, I'm going to do all four of the Tim Burton Batman movies. Now, I know they're not all Tim Burton, but they're that era, that initial run. So Batman to Batman and Robin. And that should be fun. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I haven't sat down and watched those movies in a row before. And I haven't really seen some of them in quite some time, especially the first movie. It was a little bit before my time. But this has been great. This was fun. Episode 20 in the books. Yay, now I can get out there. Nope, see, the sun was shining when I sat down to record this. And now I look out and it's just more shitty, pissy gray sky. Perfect. But it's worth it because I love talking to myself in my room, which means I get to talk to you guys, hopefully, 
you're out there listening to this, it does make me very happy. So until it's time for Batman, you can find me on Facebook at Steal My Name Cast. You can find me on SoundCloud at the Steal My Name Podcast. Please like, subscribe, share, uh, tweet, Instagram, call a friend, mail a letter, whatever. Spread the word around. It would call it a personal favor from one friend to another. I really appreciate it. So thank you guys once again. And until next time, remember to steal someone else's name because this one is already taken.